Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Let's Talk Parks. My name is Becky Dunlap, your host, and today we are diving into the future of parks and recreation when it comes to how to create inclusive spaces. Today, I'm excited to invite you on this journey with us as we talk about how we can make changes to benefit those who need them in our public spaces. And while it's incredibly important, we're not just talking about ramps and wheelchair-friendly paths. We're talking about more than just the physical today to explore the cognitive and sensory needs of those in our community and addressing the needs of those that often go unnoticed. And if you're a parks and recreation professional today, you may know that this inclusivity is important, but you just aren't sure of the next steps. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to be really specific and provide examples and expertise in this interview that's going to help take you to the next right step. So join me as we welcome our guests for this show. Hey everyone, my name is Lane Graham and I am a manager for Parks and Recreation in Gilbert, Arizona. I've been working in recreation for just over 20 years now with a lot of focus on adaptive recreation and serving individuals with disabilities. One of the things I really appreciate about Lane in this episode is that she gets really specific about the changes that the town of Gilbert is making, not only in their programs, but also in regard to preparing people to visit their facilities and parks. So I really appreciate her sharing what the town is doing. I think that this is most important for those that are listening is to hearing how it actually gets implemented. So I think that'll be really beneficial. Belaine is also a rock star because she is helping to lead the charge when it comes to their Town of Gilbert Parks and Recreation Master Plan, which Barry Dunn is working with them on. And there is just an incredible engagement effort happening right now. If you want to go learn more about that master plan, you can just search for Town of Gilbert Parks and Recreation Master Plan. There's a great introductory hype video about the process, as well as a lot of interesting ways that the community is being asked to get involved. So definitely a shameless plug for that. But now let's hear from Meredith, who's from IBCCS. She'll tell you more about that here in a second, who's really serving as our resident expert here on the show uh, in this episode to talk about those with sensory needs and those that have autism and how we can better prepare to make their experience in our parks and recreation facilities even better. Hi, I'm Meredith Teakin. I'm the president of IBCCES, which stands for the International Board of Credentialing and Continuing Education Standards. IBCCS works with a variety of organizations and industries for our certification programs. So as a credentialing organization, what we're focusing on is how do we create and help organizations meet standards and then communicate that to the public so that folks that are looking for places to go and things to do and even places to work can feel comfortable knowing that organization has taken some extra steps and also might provide some additional accommodations or flexible options for them. So that's really the goal with the certification, no matter what industry it is that we work in. And for Parks and Recreation, we know that there is a gap right now. We've done a couple different think tanks, not only in the town of Gilbert, but also through the city of Pflugerville's master planning efforts. And when we ask about the top trends and things that leaders in parks and recreation are trying to be aware of and 
and be prepared for, one of the top items we see is inclusivity. And so if we know that this is important, but we often have trouble putting our finger on next steps, then oftentimes we have to call on other people to give us that insight to understand what the next steps are and to have a third-party perspective on what those gaps are. Because if you're too close, you often can't see what opportunities are there. And so the town of Gilbert decided that certification and training through IBCCS was really the best way to equip their staff to serve their community. And so here's Lane talking about the benefits of that choice and why they chose this path. And then she also dives into the specific examples and changes to the programs that she took away from this certification and how they put it into practice. For Gilbert, we really wanted to provide a welcoming environment for individuals with autism or the families to feel comfortable sharing about their child. And for us, it was a change from you know, a reactive process of inclusion to a proactive process so that we were putting the information out to the individuals, to the families, so that they felt more comfortable in sharing and contributing a background and history of their child with our staff so that we could provide a better service. So ultimately, that was our goal. A lot of other benefits came along with it, just general sensitivity and awareness for our staff to be treating everyone in the general community with respect and not just making a judgment based on what they might look like or how they're behaving. And so for our staff, I think it's just making them better people, better stewards for the community, and providing a better opportunity for community members to be involved in our programs. One thing I really appreciate about this training is that it's not just for a few people, and it's not just for those that lead maybe the programs for those with disabilities. As Meredith is about to go into, it's required for the certification that at least 80% or more of public-facing staff have to complete this training. Too often, we rely on entry-level employees to know how to handle some of the most difficult situations. And so I think any opportunity we have to train those employees and to give them the tools and skills that they need to successfully navigate those challenging situations is something that we should invest in. So let's learn a little bit more about what this training looks like, and then we'll go into a little bit more about the benefits and next steps that are specific to Parks and Rec. So to be considered a certified autism center, the baseline is that at least 80% or more of the public-facing staff have to complete some level of training with us. So that's obviously specific to autism and sensory needs. They also, in many cases, have to undergo an on-site visit. So for an organization like a Parks and Recreation Department, we're training the staff. We have multiple levels and types of training depending on that person's role and how they interact with the public. And then we also would do an on-site visit. So providing things like sensory guides and other recommendations for some of those spaces like rec centers and perks and other places where folks are going to be utilizing the resources there and interacting with the staff so that the physical space and the processes and procedures can get some review and support from IBCCS to make those options a little more flexible as well. At the core of it, parks and recreation departments serve the community, right? We want folks to access our programs. We want to make things accessible. We want to get as many people as possible involved in utilizing those resources and spaces and all the really fun and amazing things that parks and recreation departments do. 
when you become certified, first and foremost, you do have a third party, IBCES, that is there to support you, provide recommendations, provide guidance for areas that maybe your staff doesn't have intimate knowledge of. We're here not only for the training portion, but throughout the lifetime of the certification. And like I mentioned, we create those sensory guides and other supports. And then on top of that, you're empowering your staff with the knowledge that you're giving them. We do have some more in-depth programs. So folks that maybe do have more experience in adaptive recreation or they spend a lot of time with kids for programming. We have longer training that can really give them additional tools to make those experiences as positive as they can be. And then by becoming certified, you're also rolling out the welcome mat to the community. You're saying, hey, we've done a little extra work in this area. We want you to come and experience all that we have to offer. And this is what we've done to make you feel more comfortable. And here's what we offer. So it really is a way to communicate and engage with the community about all the stuff that you're doing. For the town of Gilbert, the process to become certified really started with our registration process and wanting the members of our community to feel like we were open to individuals with disabilities of any or any special needs being involved in our programs. So we added questions to our registration process to make them feel more comfortable in providing the information. And from there, then we started with the training for the employees and all staff, every level. So grounds maintenance staff, facilities staff, recreation staff, everyone involved in working in our parks and recreation department completed one of the levels of the training to improve our services to the community and just for the general public to feel like we're prepared. We know what we're talking about and we can engage with their child, engage with the family, provide a better experience for them while they're in our parks and in our system. So the community engagement piece, I think, was for us just a welcoming experience, putting that proactive approach in place so that family members joined with the comfort and knowing that they their child was going to be accepted their child is going to be included and that our staff are going to be able to serve them and provide a good experience. One of the things I always think about is what does this actually look like? How do we make this happen and how do we ensure that everyone is included? And I just really appreciate hearing specific examples so you, I can sort of visualize what it means for this to be real. And so in this next section, Lane talks about how this was applied specifically to special events. And as we get further into the episode, you'll hear how this also translates to facilities and programs through the sensory guides, and then also to marketing and communication through the things that we put on our website, the, the, the ways that we communicate with the public. And so let's hear Lane talk about how all this starts to come together. Our special events team has created a calm down zone or a sensory free area at most events that are happening for the town. So at 4th of July, when the fireworks are going off, there's a quiet tent that individuals could go to that's promoted for the event and they can get noise canceling headphones. It's away from there. There's some calming like chairs and some other lights and things like that may help deescalate the situation for an individual that's really overstimulated by that type of environment. There's also a Truckapalooza event where kids love going and honking the horns and the flashing lights and all the fun things with fire trucks and big vehicles. But they have created, the special events team has created a quiet, sensory-free hour before the event so that individuals with sensory sensitivities can still enjoy that event 
without the horns honking and without the chaos of flashing lights and things that may overstimulate them. We know that our community members are seeking safe places where they feel like they belong, a place where they can come to and people understand them, and where others are willing to make accommodations for them, but not in a way that singles them out. So this is the challenge that we have in Parks and Recreation is making it easy for the community to express their needs in order to cater the programs and facilities for them and make a better experience. But one of the things we have to be mindful of is the potential stigma around those with sensory sensitivities, those with autism, and just neurodivergence in general. And so the way that Meredith explains this need and talking about the statistics actually really shocked me. I had no idea that so many people identified as having sensitivity needs. And so when you compound this with a lot of the other mental health issues going on in our communities, it just becomes more and more important to prioritize these items as an agency that stands for community health and well-being. When we talk about the impact, one in six people have a sensory need or sensitivity. The CDC just updated the diagnosis numbers for autism to one in 36 children. And there's lots of folks that still don't have a formal diagnosis. So when we talk about opening things up and making sure that the community is engaged and providing these supports for individuals and their families, there's a huge number of people that can benefit from this. Not every autistic person has sensory sensitivities. In some cases, they're sensory seeking. So they want to go to the parks and to the recreation areas and they can really benefit from being able to access pools and aquatic centers. They can really benefit from being able to go to the parks and play and get that sensory stimulation that they crave. But knowing that there are tools such as the sensory guides to help, there's staff at those centers or recreation areas that can understand if they do need assistance. And every individual that's autistic is a little bit different. So not everybody has the same sensitivities. And most folks, I would say when you look at a family, like maybe parents who have a child that's autistic, there's a lot of stigma and shame that is still attached to that. People don't understand when they take their family out in public and if their child does get overwhelmed. There's a lot of misunderstandings that can take place. There's a lot of planning that has to happen before they do things and really breaking down those barriers and just, like I said, rolling out the welcome mat and knowing that the staff is going to be understanding is really helpful. You already have at most parks and rec departments, obviously folks that are using the services and going to the rec centers that have disabilities or that maybe are autistic, like they're already there using those facilities. So could we make their experience better? Sure. But then there's also a segment of the population that may have been hesitant. They weren't sure how they would be received or they didn't know all that you offer. They don't know that they could access these resources. And in a lot of cases, they might try to access those resources, but because of maybe things that have happened in the past, they don't share that their child has those different needs or that the participant has those differences. And so then it also causes confusion later on when the staff start interacting with that individual. So again, just as far as the impact, it can really just take a burden off of a lot of families and just open up the world to them in a new way that's really important and really beneficial. And you also, I just don't want to overstate also the impact statistically your organization is neurodiverse as well. So you probably have staff members, whether they've told you or not, that are on the spectrum or have sensory needs as well. And so we often get feedback around the staff empowerment and the conversations that can happen internally too. 
the town of Gilbert, when I first joined just over a year ago with Gilbert, big initiative was really just equity of all of our parks. We want everyone to have equal access. We want everyone to be invited and welcome to participate. And along those lines, I focus a lot on inclusion and making sure that individuals with all types of special needs or disabilities or anything can participate equally, just like everyone else. And right away when we started the initiative to be the department of the future that was forward thinking and kind of ahead of the curve as far as inclusion and equity access would be, this certification was the first thing I thought of because I felt like the training for the staff, the communication with the community, everything aligned with what we were trying to accomplish. And it really kickstarted the efforts for Gilbert to achieve what we were looking for, to communicate with the community and really start including everybody. So the first season, the first season that I put the question in our registration system, we had over 60 requests for an inclusion service, everything from my child's diabetic. And I would just like to bring some snacks and have some things for their swim lesson to I'm a wheelchair user and I want to participate in your summer camp. How can you accommodate me? We had over 60 in just the first season, which is three months. And it's really just continued from there. And so for Gilbert, it was inclusion and equal access for everybody. And we're going to continue that drive. We're, we're still pushing the marketing. We're still trying to communicate with the community because we're definitely not serving everybody at this time. And speaking of marketing, so often we think of that as a nice to have, as if if we had more dollars in our budget, then we'd prioritize marketing. But I've never thought of it so much in terms of accessibility. I think Meredith does a fantastic job in pointing out how providing more information, whether it be through video tours or photos or this sensory guide, that type of information helps everybody make an informed decision about whether or not that experience is for them and whether or not it's going to be a positive one and whether or not it's worth their time. And so given the information on their website or through social media, again, isn't just a nice to have, it's a must have and it promotes inclusivity. If you think you're over communicating, you're probably doing just enough. I say that all the time, but there's just never enough information as far as the organizations that I see. So even if you have a really robust website, Again, photos, videos, 360 walkthroughs, descriptions, obviously the sensory guides that we create help with that. But any information you can provide up front that's easy to find, that's online, that people can look at before they visit the location is key. And autism doesn't go away when you turn 18. Again, there's adults that might want to use the facilities or work out or take a class. But providing information, a lot of detailed information is very helpful and making it easy to find. I know that updating websites is sometimes difficult, but that is really important. So just taking a fresh look at all of your communication. And also I find a lot of times, a lot of parks and rec organizations specifically have a lot of really cool and great things, but who, how would anyone know? Is it on the website? Is it updated? Where would you find out? How do you go there or sign up? Like, what do you, what do you do? So. In some cases, there's a lot of scattered information that could be streamlined and put together in one easy place. We also know that a lot of disabilities are intersectional. So you might be autistic and also use a wheelchair or have a, mo have a mobility support or whatever the case may be. And then we also provide sensory guides as part of those on-site visits. So the communication piece and letting folks know and 
understand really the detail sensory environment is very important. And then also from a general perspective, just breaking down those barriers and letting folks feel comfortable trying new things, going new places, doing different things is obviously important. And we do cover things also like safety. So there is a potential chance that somebody might try an activity or go to a location and they might get upset. They might get overwhelmed. They might try to escape that environment and run away. There, there are things to be aware of from a safety perspective, too, that we talk about. So obviously that's going to enhance the experience. But a lot of it is really just opening up those lines of communication and being proactive about what you can share with the folks before they come to that space. And once they're there, your staff has empathy and understanding and actual tools, strategies that they can use to communicate with those individuals to figure out how they can help them best. The sensory guides that are provided after the audit is complete from IVCES is one of my favorite parts of the certification process. It really allows the individuals visiting Gilbert, Arizona specifically, the individuals visiting Gilbert to understand better what they're going to experience while they're there. Um, I've had families reach out to me to say, thank you so much for putting this information out there. My son loves sand and wanted a playground with a specific sand base, which we don't have a lot of, but we have sand features now. And so they were seeking a playground that had that. And I've had other families reach out and say, I, my son cannot be at a playground that has sand. And so I love that you've put this information out there so that I could make a better decision before going to that park and experiencing it. So it's not only visitors that are coming from out of state, which tourism is big in Arizona. So we have a lot of visitors coming from other states and other places. It's also our residents of Gilbert that are able to, we build a new park and then they can take this information in and better understand what they're going to, what their child might experience while they're there and what they may need to avoid or what they might want to try and find while they're there. It also provides some guidance as far as some sensory free or lower sensory areas that they would be aware of if their child were to be overstimulated that they could go visit while they were there. So a lot of families really enjoy it. For us, I think it's a better understanding of some of the amenities moving forward as well. Playgrounds that are close to lakes are becoming very common for us because we use the lakes for irrigation and watering the grass, but then that's kids with autism are drawn to water. So that's a deterrent for them to go to that park. But then a splash pad that has a fence around it or some sort of barrier around it is something that they would want to seek out because it's easier to control and keep them in the play space. So there are a lot of things that came from the audit that we will now consider moving forward and planning new parks and play areas as well. So now let's shift gears a bit and dive a little bit deeper into the impact of these accessibility measures, because it's not just about ticking boxes and gaining certifications. It's about the real tangible changes that can positively affect lives on a daily basis. Our public works team had to shut down a roadway because of a water main break. And there was an individual on a bicycle that was having, like visibly was having a hard time with the changing the route that they would normally take to work or to school. And the public works leader on that team was able to think through what we had been talking about as a department and what we presented to them and was able to approach the individual and accommodate them and make them able to take the route that they wanted to take so that it didn't really mess up their day and ruin the experience that they had with Gilbert. So it really has impacted a lot of different areas of our town. 
and just being mindful of how we can serve individuals better and more effectively. When we think about inclusion and accessibility, there's a really famous cartoon that basically shows kids trying to get into a school and there's a bunch of snow that's blocking the entrance and there's a ramp for folks who use wheelchairs and then there's steps that lead up to that entrance. And there's a bunch of kids saying, we need to get into the building, clear the path, help us get in. And there's one one kid who is in a wheelchair and the person that is running that facility says, okay, everybody hold on, I'm going to clear the steps first and then I'll get to the ramp second so that everybody can get up the steps except the person in the wheelchair, but you wait a second. And the person, the child in the wheelchair says, but if you clear the ramp, we can all get in at the same time. We can all use the ramp. The ramp is not just for people who use wheelchairs. Obviously, that's what it was designed for. But people, everybody can walk up the ramp. So why don't you clear the ramp first? So it's just a mindset of, just like you said, Becky, it's not just marketing and nice to haves. People don't know if they show up to a location that says it's accessible, but they specifically need a grab bar or they can't maneuver certain heights or bumps or walls or walkways or whatever the case may be, then that's going to basically make them feel like they probably shouldn't go to that location if the information is not available. Every individual who uses a wheelchair is not the same. Every individual who's autistic is not the same. So providing things like those 360 views, photos, detailed descriptions, listings, all of that information helps people decide how they can make the space work or what they need to do to prepare. So again, it's not all on you once they arrive and they're like, you said this was accessible. Where is the access? So it really helps the organization have a smoother on-site experience with the folks that are coming to your location. And those things are very critical to access for a variety of people, millions and millions of people that are looking for things like that. So just another way to think of it, you know, these sensory guides, they're not behind a wall that says you you can only look at these sensory guides if you're autistic. There are a lot of people that can benefit from those sensory guides and they're meant to be shared with everybody. And just considering the sensory experience, every person is different. Even folks that are on the autism spectrum, they have different sensitivities or different sensory seeking things that they want to focus on. But in general, I just find that if you don't have a personal sensitivity to it, we tend to just not think about it. So things like smells, things like lighting options, things like colors and information. I have never been to a location that had adequate signage, in my opinion. So, you know, providing a lot of those tools on site as well is is very helpful. You know, signage with symbol-based communication and just more of it so they know where to go and what to do. I mean, some locations aren't huge, but still, if you get turned around, if you've never been there, if you're trying to get to the bathroom quickly, how would you know how to do that? So really just take, looking at things with fresh eyes from a sensory perspective and a communication perspective is always what I recommend. And then just know that it is a process, right? So it, it's a journey. It's not a one-time thing. This is something that you're going to, even with the partners that we work with certification, this is part of all the other things that they do. And we work with them for years to continue the journey and continue adding and to update as we have new best practices or they have new projects that they're working on. So plan for feedback and engagement with the community. You might get feedback and things might not turn out how you think they might. But if you're open to the feedback, then you can continue to tailor those programs. And again, let people know that they have access to these things. Because I've worked with organizations that they had a low sensory day 
that wasn't necessarily well publicized. And so nobody came to it. And they're like, I don't know. I guess people don't want that. It's And from our perspective, it's how did you publicize it? Who knew about it? How did they know how to sign up? Was it easy? So all these things, trying and having an open mind and testing things and being open to feedback, I think is always important too, because again, everybody is still an individual. Well, we've covered quite a bit of ground today. We've journeyed through the inspiring town of Gilbert, Arizona, where inclusivity really isn't a buzzword. It's a strategic priority that impacts other decisions. And we've seen how this commitment to accessibility extends far beyond just physical modifications, but really into the heart of the experiences that our parks provide. Thanks to our guests, Lane and Meredith, we've learned about the transformative work of IBCCES and how their unique approach to training our frontline staff and those that interact with the public is really paving the way for a future where everyone feels welcome in our parks and recreation spaces. So whether it's understanding the sensory experiences of our parks or designing spaces that cater to a wide range of abilities, today's discussion hopefully reminded you all, and myself included, that at its core, our work in parks and recreation is about serving all members of our community. And if you want to learn more about IVCCS, you can reach out to them and find them on their website or reach out to them directly about the things that you heard today. So as a wrap up, we just like to leave you with a final thought, and that is what can you do in your own parks and recreation spaces to cultivate an atmosphere and environment of inclusivity and accessibility? Thanks for listening in to this episode of Let's Talk Parks. We'd love to hear your thoughts and experiences on this subject too. Until next time, let's talk parks.